It's August, and while summer may be ending, back to school is just around the corner. That means it's time to start packing lunches again with healthy options like dairy. Whether yogurt, cheese sticks, or grilled cheese, there's many ways to include dairy for those back-to-school lunches and ensure that kids get protein, vitamin D, and calcium. And that's in addition to breakfast with some milk, either by the glass or in a bowl of cereal. For more ways to include dairy as part of your back-to-school routine, visit floridamilk.com or lechedeflorida.com and get more info as well as recipes. Trust me, including dairy in their lunches is way easier than trying to remember how to solve word problems. This is DJ. And this is Ish. And this is season, season six, six of, of Better Let, Let Me Tell You. All right, so you know if there's one thing that DJ and I are, it's proud Miami boys. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about a recent study conducted by FIU or at FIU about how Miami has basically its own language and how it's uh, it's got the Spanglish and the Spanish influences and all of that. So you know we like to be trendsetters here. And so today we have the author or I think co-author of that paper who we actually got in touch with because we posted about it and he reached out and said thanks and we said come on the show because we've got to talk about this we have FIU professor of linguistics and English Philip Carter with us today thank you so much for joining us man my pleasure thanks for having me on and we were I was saying right before the interview started I was saying this is the first time that a post of ours has become an interview yeah has turned you know, into an interview. It trickled to an interview the magic of social media I know right Absolutely. I know, right? So, you know, we're really excited to, to have this conversation because prior to your official study, you know, that was something we would always say kind of jokingly and, and, you know, in jest, like, oh my gosh, in Miami, we talk our own type of language and, you know, everybody has like a story of like maybe when they were outside of Miami and in other places, people like maybe questioned them a little bit. So when we saw that there was actual real research done by a major university with people behind it, you know, talking about this and showing this, we were like, wow, we, we got to look into this. Our story. anecdote had footnotes yeah, now so. is basically what it came down to. So you're a professor of linguistics. So obviously you've studied multi, you know, various languages. So tell us a little bit about your background and what what made you think about working on this and 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 diving? I mean, because this is a pretty it's very specific, yeah, specific yeah. Uh, thing to to talk about and research. So, tell us a little bit about your background and what made you go down this route. Well, I I have a PhD in linguistics from Duke University, and I moved when I finished there. I moved to Los Angeles to work as a postdoc at the University of Southern California, and I was. My research has always been on multilingual communities um, where the, wherever I was living, in Texas and North Carolina and California, and then here. And I took the job at FIU when my postdoc ended because I wanted specifically to be in Miami, and I was drawn to Miami because of the, the language scene here, and I was really drawn to the Spanish-speaking scene. Miami is, in my estimation, the most diverse Spanish-speaking city in the world because there is... Obviously, the majority uh, Cuban and Caribbean Spanish varieties spoken here, which are themselves diverse. 
but there's also large numbers of Colombians and Venezuelans and Nicaraguans. I think those are the four largest national origin groups. But unto them, Ecuadorians, Argentines, Spaniards, Puerto Ricans, everybody is here and they've brought all of their diverse ways of speaking Spanish. And so that's why I chose FIU and South Florida to launch my career. Um, but then when I got here, I realized there's a lot of stuff going on with language besides the transplant varieties of Spanish, um, including the English language scene. And so uh, 13 years ago, I just started making notes about the types of things that I heard in English. And over time, these became published research studies. And that's still where Why do I feel he heard us at Publix once? <laughs> and that's where this all started. And, and, and so, so yeah, that is my question. What were those things? What were those things that of somebody who's not a, a native... You were like, wait. Yeah, because we don't what, hear it. Uh, yeah, we don't hear. We're right. blind to this. We're, we're or deaf, as it were. <laughs> um, what is it? Yeah. What is it that stood out to you that you're like, wait, wait, there's something here? Um, the first thing to say is that your experience of not hearing it is the exact precise experience of everybody who speaks their home language variety. You know, so if you're from, you know, Chicago, you don't know that you sound like you're from Chicago until you leave and someone says, oh, you have an accent. Or in my case, I grew up in North Carolina, and I remember, um, I remember, I was once in a Whole Foods parking lot in Raleigh, North Carolina, and and someone pulled in and asked me for directions, and I gave them directions, and they literally laughed in my face through the window, and I said, I, I said, why are you? What's so funny? And she said, Oh, just the way you said I forty. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, Oh gosh, I didn't realize, right. you know. So the you know you have epiphanies about your home language variety at a certain point in your life that is usually not your childhood unless you're leaving your 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 home speech community. So that's that's an experience of everybody all over the world is like, oh, I speak a language or oh, I speak a dialect or oh, I sound differently from other people. So when I got here, um, it's, well, first of all, we can also distinguish between three things. Spanglish, okay, okay um, foreign accented speech, and what we've been calling Miami English. Those are all wow. re related phenomena. That's but a lot to unpack. I, yeah. I cannot wait to see our version of the Oxford Dictionary because yeah. that's tremendo. That have we yeah. already done too much? Is it time <laughs> but yeah, no. That what you just said—that's that's so true. Spanglish, Miami English, and then the you know people who speak with an accent. Yeah, exactly. And all of those are those all the, those three strands are related. They're linked to each other in our what linguists call a speech community. So this area where we're all sharing. You know, we're all sharing languages and language norms and language practices, but they're also different. You know, so um, I don't know if you want to go through them one by one, but... Yeah, but, of course. Yeah. But, okay, so we know what Spanglish is. And the, the thing that I've been noticing in comments on the social media posts about this research is that people are conflating Spanglish with Miami English. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to caution against that because you can speak... Uh, a, a dialect of English informed by historically informed by Spanish and yourself not be a bilingual or yourself not speak Spanglish or not, you know, code switch. Would it be fair to say if, if we're trying to establish a difference between Spanglish and Miami English, Spanglish is obviously the combination of, of both languages in the context of just one sentence or, or one statement, whereas Miami English might have shades of direct translations that don't quote unquote make sense in grammatical English? Well, yes, except for I will push back on the notion of grammatical English because this is that implies that this is ungrammatical English, which is not true. Okay. Yes, okay. this is as grammatical as any other variety of English that you're going to find. You just made all of Hialeah happy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's the way that it works. I mean, in Hialeah, there are, because Hialeah is a majority immigrant community, there is also a lot of foreign accented speech and English language learners. We did not focus on that community in the study. We focused on folks born in my, well, we focused on immigrants, but we focused on their kids. So the question is, when does something, when does something transition from being a function of immigrant learner speech to being uh, nativized as a dialect? When the kids learn it and when the grandkids learn it. So with these calcs, a calc is a loan translation like the idea of bajar del carro that gives you get down from the car, pome la luz, put me the light, that type of stuff. If it was just a function of immigrant speech, then we would say, okay, that's cool. That's, a fun that's, that's the confluence of Spanish. All these people learning, 65% of Miami-Dade County is foreign-born, so there's lots of people who are learning English. But then we found that, their, that certain of these expressions are used amongst their kid, their children who were born here, and also their grandchildren. Yeah. So yeah, and the third generation, these these types of calc expressions at least are are present. Um, so that that is, you know, when I see people say, "Oh, we knew this already." There's Spanglish. Well, yeah, everybody knows that there's Spanglish in South Florida, but what we're talking about specifically is the art uh, lexical, so war, vocabulary, minor grammatical, and and phonetic phonological traces of Spanish in the English that kids learn here when they grow right. up. Right. So it is English influenced by Spanish, but it's not Spanglish. Correct. That is exactly right. Along the lines of uh, Scandinavian languages leaving their influence on English in Minnesota, or German leaving its influence on English in Pennsylvania, or Cherokee leaving its influence on the English spoken in Western North Carolina, and on and on and on and on. You know, Italian leaving its influence, or Yiddish leaving its influence in certain Jewish-speaking communities in New York City, right? So there's a, a, how do dialects get formed? One of two ways. Either people isolate from one another and their language variety drifts into something that becomes different, or they come into contact with another language group. And that language group over time, if the contact is sustained over decades or generations, people start borrowing each other's words and the structures it is get an, Would an extreme case of that would be like Creole to French? Um, yeah, well, okay, so uh, that is exactly so, except for we would call that a separate language rather than a dialect. But yeah, that's it. That, yes, I would say that's correct. Yeah, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because I remember I, I went to uh, school up in the Midwest and when I was there, everybody kept asking me, your accent, where is it from? And I didn't realize I had an accent because this is the way everybody speaks here. And I think that, you know, when we think of accents in the United States, we think California, we think New Texas, York. New York, Brooklyn, you the know. South. You don't necessarily think Miami, right? There, there are certain areas you don't, they're not known for their accent, I guess. Um, so that's why for me, it was such a like, wait, what? Like, what do you mean I have an accent? And then but they couldn't place you. They couldn't place it because it's it's a more it's not as popular as like you know a Texas accent or or what have you. So I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that about you said about how it the influence on second or third generations and on and on that it becomes part of the way they speak English, uh, the English language. Give us some examples of that because, like, one one of the one of the most common ones that we always use it's a slang, unfortunately, and it's a curse word. But you know, the whole in Spanish you say a lot comiendo mierda, mm -hmm. yeah. which translates to eating shit. Yes, we studied <laughs> and, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's one of those things that again we say it here. And that's so not going without away even soon. <laughs> without even thinking about it, but then. 
people don't use that term. So give us some, you know, maybe Yeah, and more. That, that one is also... Um, a lot of these calcic... Well, first of all, let me clarify that the dialect is not only the word choices. It is also the sound system. And so we published a paper three years ago where we studied the vowel system of Miami English and the vowel pronunciations of words, which are overwhelmingly the same as vowel pronunciations anywhere else in American English, except for there are a few subtle differences where we are able to show that it's likely Spanish influence. Spanish has a five vowel system and English, American English has like a 14 vowel system. So there's certain places in which the, 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 the we call them shapes, the shape of the vowel is a little bit more like Spanish than it would be, say, elsewhere in a place where the, the English is not influenced from the Spanish. So it's, it's not only the words, but it is also the words. And certain of these calc expressions, these loan translations like get down from the car, are used elsewhere in the United States in Latinx majority communities. So people have been writing to me over the past couple of weeks saying, oh, we use this in, in L.A., or we use this in New Mexico, or we use this in Albuquerque, we use this in Phoenix and Chicano communities, or, you know, Salvadoran communities. And also it happens to be the case that in French, you also get down from the car. So in New Orleans, it's common for folks, even who are not French speakers or have French heritage necessarily, to say get down from the car. Um, and Haitians here are telling me, oh, we say get down from the car, because Creole has taken the French uh, notion of getting down from the car which then gets uh, calced into English. Um, yeah, that isn't, that is just so fascinating. And I, I, you mentioned, you know, the, the vowels. Is that also like, obviously Spanish and English have very different speech patterns and rhythms. Mm -hmm. Does that also Yeah, we studied the rhythm. It? Yeah, we studied, we literally measured timing um, of uh, speech. And so you can, we discovered that, uh, the speech that we measured is a little bit more timed like Spanish than uh, the speech of uh, non-Latinxes in South Florida. When we looked at African-Americans and non-Hispanic non Anglo-whites, the uh, Cuban-American speech was timed a little bit differently. It's like a little more like sing-songy as opposed no, to like No, no, no. It's, like, it's more about like having shorter syllables that recur at regular intervals um, as opposed to having syllables of various lengths recurring at different intervals. Yeah. As far as Spanglish goes, mm -hmm. is Spanglish, I, I don't know if the right term to use as a phenomenon, uh, but is Spanglish something that is more prevalent in South Florida than in other areas with a high Latin community? Like let's say in LA or, or Texas even. Uh, because I, I, I may be completely incorrect. I, I, I don't see or hear uh, other people in other parts of the country that are Latin and speak Spanish combine the two as much as we do but i mean maybe they do uh i just haven't noticed is it more prevalent here than in other i places? don't think so no i think the i think i think your observation is correct that you don't see it and that's because the culture erases it mm -hmm. i think that we don't have like in public yeah i think that we don't it, or mainstream i'm gonna i'm going to invoke white hegemony the mainstream white hegemonic u.s culture erases linguistic difference in general and also is not attuned to the language dynamics in Latinx majority communities. I did research on the Mexico-Texas border where people have been speaking Spanglish for a very, very long yeah, time. They've been there a while. Yes, <laughs> and and multiple generations of people are speaking Spanglish, and it is, I, I would say, more, um, more down the line than even here. And by that I mean 
it's really integrated and that is 100% the way that people talk in that community. But likewise, um, in LA, if you're in, if I lived in a Mexican neighborhood, the people are, are moving between English. Well, you can think about it this way. Also the bilingual continuum that's on the bilingual continuum in Spanish, English, bilingual communities that some people are English dominant. Some people are Spanish dominant and there are a lot of people in the middle. And those people in the middle are kind of like language brokers who are going between this pole and that pole and kind of sewing everything together. When you're doing this type of research, I, I don't know if, if the right term to use is a curveball, but when you're studying, for example, let's say Spanish down here in South Florida, there's such a large Cuban community. Within Cubans, they speak very differently. Like my family got here 40 some years ago, so we speak Spanish a certain way. Cubans that just get here or have been here, let's say, less than 10 years. But even the, speak, but even people who got here when your parents, like depending on where you're from on the island. Right, right. But 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 this is also because a lot of people say that in Cuba, language has changed generally, not just regionally, generally, uh, maybe impacted by the social changes in Cuba. Uh, but they do speak Spanish because even from people that are from Havana, speak Spanish differently now than they spoke 40, 50 years ago? Well, the, um, to that I want to say yes and no. Yes in the sense that every language variety over half a century is going to change, right? Like no language variety, you, none, none of our languages or dialects are like in a, in a vacuum-packed jar, like sitting on a shelf. They're all living and breathing, and so they are all moving, all of them. Um there's also kind of what I would say in that assessment, a sample error, where when, if you're looking, if you're taking the pulse of, of Spanish from La Habana in 1959 or 1960 by looking at the people who came to Miami, that is a very different group of people in terms of socioeconomic status than the people who are coming now. It's a certain demographic. Yes, it's a certain demographic. And so uh, um, the uh, w one or the other is not more authentic or less authentic Havana Spanish they're just different, right? right? And, they're, and, and we're taking the pulse at different points in time and at different, uh, different parts of the socioeconomic hierarchy. The, they are different, but one is not more legitimate than the other. So interesting. Like, so much to, like, just um, to, unpack. Yeah. And, and I want to touch on something because we've kind of been mentioning it, but I have this quote from you, which I love. It says, when we conduct research like this, it's a reminder that there aren't, quote unquote, real words or, quote unquote, pretend words. There are only words. And all the words come from somewhere and someplace. And I, 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 that's something that I think we forget many times because, again, like I said earlier, like, well, you know, grammar and that's incorrect and, and what have you. Have you found that there have maybe been changing, changing mindsets in that respect that, you know, where as opposed to before people would just be like, no, that's improper. And I'm not talking about in school. I mean, obviously in school you have to follow the rules of whatever the teacher wants. Or is it still like this like uphill battle to, to get these types of Miami English, let's use that as the example, sort of quote-unquote recognized as it's legitimate. It's not them being incorrect. Yeah, there's an uphill battle for sure still, including in the schools. And I would also then just lightly uh, press back on the you, you do whatever the teacher says. Because remember, the teacher, who's the teacher? The teacher is an arbiter of an idea. Where does that idea come from? Well, the teacher's the one who's going to give you your grade. Yeah, so, that's why right. okay, so let's follow the teacher for follow now. Follow the teacher for now, right, let's right, right. Let's follow the teacher yeah, for yeah, now, yeah, but yeah. let's also yeah. question the system that produces yes. the teacher. Okay, right? okay, okay, okay. So it's okay. A both, for me, it's a both and. I'm, and by the way, let me be on record saying I'm not, I am not suggesting that we do not have to have, that we cannot create norms around what, you know, when we use what language and what style of language to use. Or I'm not saying throw everything out. I am saying that certain of these beliefs about language 
are actually detrimental to us and our language community and to the way that we raise our kids in multilingual communities and so forth. And that we could possibly rethink some things with a little bit more perspective. And so to, to, to directly answer the question, it, to me, it's still an uphill battle because, um, uh, so on that thing, all words are words, lexicographers, people that make dictionaries will be the first ones to tell you we're the only ones who print books that are automatically out of date at the time that they're published. Because how does a word end up in the dictionary? They have to find X number of printed attestations in print. And then they decide to put it in the, you know, the lexicographers. Yes, exactly. So it's a, it's print based, but lexicographers are linguists, are type of linguists who know that words are created by human beings in speech communities and are circulating in speech communities and are legitimate words before any so-called authority would ever look at them, recognize them, evaluate them, and put Is them in a the dictionary. Like an example of that would be how Google has become a verb. Uh-huh. Yeah, or just Google. Or how every time every update to the Diccionario de la Lengua Española and everybody freaks out because they added you know, Spanglish is a word in the dictionary now and everybody loses their mind. Or, you know, they put bootylicious in the dictionary and, you know, the English dictionary. <laughs> but it was, that, one was, that one, it was about time. It <laughs> was about was, time, yeah, damn it. Overdue. I needed that one. Overdue. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, people lose their mind because they think that, you know, the dictionary is an arbiter of respectable language, but dictionary, but that's not the case. Dictionaries simply are a retrospective of, uh, of, of uh, an account, a retrospective account of language use. All language use, people I think think language, if there's one thing I could disavow, it's people thinking language comes from the top down. You know, that there's an authority who are like God or like some like kind of authority who, yeah, yeah. who creates language and then everybody else kind of screws it up. But that is, you know, and you're like, you're missing the target or I speak bad or people who tell me I speak bad Spanish or I speak bad English. No, you don't. Who said that? Language always comes... Okay, where does grammar come from? Let me ask you that question. Oh, I have no fucking yeah. clue. No. From England somewhere? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like they created stuff. They look stuffy. I don't know. Like They, they look like they would create it. Where do... I mean, so just like a, ba like a basic... Uh, I don't mean the grammar rules that, you know, a teacher... You know, don't put split an infinitive, those types of things. I'm talking about, like, in English, you put the subject, then you put the verb, then you put the object. Where does that come from? From just the way people speak? Yes, Going back millennia, it, it, no one, okay, when did English begin? You can say like 436, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes leave the Danish Peninsula. They wander over to the British Isles. They encounter the Celts. And so already in maybe the 5th or 6th century, there's the, uh, like old English is taking root. Was that somebody who was writing down? Was that, you know, some authority creating rules? No, it was the, uh, people, human beings using their evolutionary endowment for language including the principles of general cognition that allow us to chunk things, order things, put things together, using the, the apparatus of the, the evolutionary endowment of our vocal apparatus to start cognizing the world through spoken language. And the grammar emerges from the people, right? Always. So it is always from us up. And there are times in our history where so-called authorities enter in and say, oh, no, you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to do it this way. Because if you think about it, punctuation, you speak in punctuation. 
Yeah, like you, with pauses and yes, things like that. and all mm-hmm. that. With, okay, this is where a comma would go. Or, and I'm excited. There's yeah, an exclamation point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. That that's a very interesting way of putting it. That it's from the top, bottom up, not the top. Yeah, it's from down. the the, the, the um, let's see. Is it too is it too academic if I say people in positions of power and influence have convinced us that they control the la- that they control what language is or that they're the real authorities? That's why I say I, mean, I want to question a little bit the teacher thing because right. like. Where do, you know, teachers who are saying, teachers, uh, I I love, first of all, now let me say, I love teachers, I respect teachers, we love the work that teachers do in their schools, pay them more, the whole thing. But, you know, teachers in Miami-Dade County who are, you know, telling their kids not to speak Spanish in class, for instance, or um, telling them not to code switch, or passing down these ideas about code switching in Spanglish, or passing down the ideas about, you know... Is that that still happening? I I, I feel like Miami schools are... Again, maybe I don't have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Would be a little more open to that because of the way the community exists, that they would understand why that's happening and how to mm-hmm. navigate that. But you're, the, way, the way you're speaking, it seems like no. I, um, I think, yeah, the school system is an arbiter of language ideologies in a way that may not be helpful to our kids. Right, I think like, they're just going by a book. They're going and, by the yes. And this is what it is. And yeah. you don't ask yep. questions. Yep. And and Spanish is offered in Miami as a foreign language, yeah. so-called foreign language, which makes you yeah. know very little sense. As as though it were you know teach it the same way it's taught in Can- the same textbooks as they're using in Kansas. Sure. Right? Does that make sense to you? No. No, it doesn't make sense. Um, and and you know a a, a Miami Dade County is sixty five percent Latinx Hispanic. Latino, Latina. Uh, Miami City is 79% Latinx, Hispanic. And yet the school system is basically English monolingual. Wow. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. We're thinking about so many things we hadn't <laughs> yeah, thought about seriously, before. I think you may, have, you, you may be the only guest that's made us think this much. Yes. Like, ever. <laughs> so so know, thank I, you for I, that. I remember a few years ago, I was reading something about this exact subject, about the hierarchy of language on how people that speak a certain way socially we look down on and oh you're not speaking um spanish correctly like this article and specifically talked a lot about dominican specifically in washington heights uh in new york that oh they don't speak proper english and they don't speak proper spanish you know and they rooted you know this article that i was reading was talking about that's even like a form of white supremacy and all that and social economic and I have to tell you that I had never thought about it that way because, again, maybe because I live in a bilingual world and we talk like that. I, I hadn't thought about about it in that aspect. But when I read that, it made sense to me. This is the way these people, people speak. That's probably the way their parents spoke and their grandparents. So why is this looked down upon? Right. Well, um, have you ever stopped to imagine or to wonder why the the – let's just do Spanish first and then we can do English – but the, 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 the Spanish-speaking countries that are considered to have the most beautiful and proper Spanish are the ones with the smallest African origin and indigenous origin populations. I never thought about that. Colombia. La Argentina. Right? These are, no, oh, those are the two yeah. first that I thought People of. People yeah. always talk about Colombian Spanish. Oh, it's so yeah. clean. It's so yeah. beautiful. It's so neutral. Right? Even though there's tons of dialect vi- variation in... Especially closer you get to the Caribbean. Yes. In Colombia, yeah. Right, exactly. But it's constructed that way because those con- those countries construct themselves as white. 
and the and the varieties of Spanish that are considered to be the worst, the most you know uneducated, the the least valuable, the most stigmatized are the countries with the largest African origin or indigenous origin populations. Like that's not a that is not that is not like an anomaly. It's set up that way. Yeah, yeah. And and as I said, I think that because I speak Spanish, I never thought about it that no. way because that that's just the way we speak. But when I started reading upon that. And what you just touched on as well, it blew my mind. I was like, yes, that is so true. Because even us, even us, they say that we, oh, we have horrible Spanish. Butcher yeah, yeah. the language. Right. Um, but that, now it puts it into context. Yeah. What he's saying. Yes, yes. yes. And so do you have horrible Spanish or do you just have Spanish that has been constructed that way because the because of the large African origin population in Cuba? And because of the political situation in Cuba, in which, you know, right? Yeah. Okay, so, but give me a feed. I mean, I, I've been pushing this thing up the mountain, the Sisyphean rock up the mountain for many years in this community where people say, oh, but, you know, we don't, pronou- we don't pronounce the end of the word or we don't, or, you know, <laughs> oh, I had a student once that said, okay, so in, in Spanish, all varieties of Spanish, you have, uh, it's, uh, it's called a bilabial, bilabial stop, ba, but the, in Spanish there's also a bilabial fricative, ba, like as in, Baca una vaca. Baca, baca una vaca. Okay. Right? Okay. I'm sitting here doing it with my mouth. Like, yeah. <laughs> but you hear the difference? Yes. Okay. So that is just Spanish phonology. Donde quiera que vayas. It's, that's 101. That's 101. A, I remember teaching a class. I can't remember what it was, but a student said, a Cuban American student said, Oh, you know, it's like in, in Spanish because we don't really completely close our lips. It's lazy. Una vaca. Instead of una paca. <laughs> that was the language ideology that they had created based on the idea that that phoneme, what linguists call a phoneme, is like less, less full than saying ba. Right? That's called a language ideology. And that comes from the idea that, oh, our language is less or our language is deficient or our language is, you know, incomplete or it's lazy or we don't print, you know, we chop off the S's or we... All of those things are just called phonological processes or dialect variation or dialect processes and are, are, are on the trajectory of language change from Old Spanish to Contemporary Spanish. They're all, they're all historically attested. And so, you know, um, people take, yeah, people take um, examples of dialect features and create these whole narratives out of them that are really rooted in race, class, national origin, Eurocentrism. We're guilty of it, too. Well, I mean, yeah, you, among, amongst ourselves, like, you know, we kind of carry that like, yeah, our Spanish isn't as pretty or as official yeah. or, you know, as as correct. Right. As, as I think we kind of accept it. Yeah, we, we kind like, of yeah, like, yeah, that's just Cuban people don't speak nice Spanish. Right. Do you feel there's a, you know, talking about this hierarchy, if you will, do you think there's a, a bigger rigidity in, in Spanish than in English in terms of what proper Spanish is versus what proper English is? Um, in, in this community, for sure. In South Florida, for sure. And I think in the Spanish-speaking world, because remember, the Spanish-speaking world also has uh, La Academia Real. Oh, that damn Academia. Yes, that publishes the dictionary and that holds a lot of sway. And there are, twenty, I think, 27 member countries that have their own national academias. You know, so there is a lot of... In the culture, there's the idea that there are authorities. You know, the English language does not have an, a language academy, and uh, nor does the United States have an official language. Sure. And that was set up by design that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson debated this 
during the colonial era about whether or not to have a language academy and whether or not to set up an official language. And John Adams said yes, and Thomas Jefferson said no. And Jefferson's, not that I really want to you know, lionize these right, right, yeah. guys. Okay, they're not, yeah. for me, the paragon of right. morality. But they're problematic, but, they're problematic, but from a historical... But, but, from a historical right, right. but because many people do invoke them for their sense of morality. Okay. Many people do do that, the so-called padres fundadores. They invoke them because they hold sway, right? right? Or we're going to look to them because they're the originalists and they're going to tell us what to do. Well, guess what Thomas Jefferson said? Do not pass an official language because that is inconsistent with the principle of freedom and liberty that we are going for here. <laughs> Namely, I don't want the government to tell me how to speak or what language to speak. Right. right? Okay. But imagine, now fast forward to 2023 and, the, and imagine the politics around that right. and how crazy things are. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we're living it now. Yeah, you know sure. that I remember, <clears throat> the reason I asked you that question is I remember when I was a kid. So there was a really popular show in uh, Spanish language television called Sábado Gigante. Oh, with Don Francisco. Don I saw him. Uh, I was at a birthday party and he was there maybe well, a month ago. It, it, well, that, uh, he, that runs was, in, he runs in much better circles yeah, than we yeah. do if he's hanging out with Don Francisco <laughs> yeah. at a birthday party. <laughs> got a um, picture with Don Francisco <laughs> on my phone. As you should. So... Um, <laughs> Sábado Gigante was like a staple in every, you know, Spanish-speaking household. And I remember when I was a kid, there was a lady who would come out every week on that show called La Doctora Olimpia Rosado. Yes. I, well, I will tell you, I grew up watching Sábado Gigante. But then you know what segment I'm yes. talking about, yeah. that people would talk and she'd correct them. Mm -hmm. And I and I'm like I have never seen anything like that in like an English oh, like the Today equivalent. show. Right. And she'd be like, "No, this is like this and this and this and this and this." And I was like, "Wow, this is really like hardcore. Yeah. Like she's not playing." <laughs> yeah, that notion of uh, of authority. The English speaking world has its own notion of authorities, which we can talk about for sure. And it does its own control and it has its own issues with race and language for sure without a doubt. But the Spanish speaking world is way more developed on that tip for sure of yeah. believing that there's there are real authorities you know real people who are telling you how it's done and everything else is bad and that's a re that's really hard to undo that notion so i want to ask you about your actual research but before we ask you about that i, I wanted to I, i've always actually been curious about this so obviously we started in a colonial state uh, so people are coming from England and other parts of Europe, but predominantly in England. How is it that the colonies and colonial America, how did we start losing what we call now the British accent and into American accent, if, if you will? How did that happen? Okay. A couple of points. Um, the dialects that's, okay, we call it this a founder's effect what you hear in England is, are the English dialects, but in Scotland and Ireland, who also settled on the Eastern seaboard, they have very different ways of speaking English. And they, and the thing that, that, that I'm, I'm assuming one of the things you're thinking of is whether or not R's are vocalized and sound like vowels or are pronounced as er. Remember Irish and Scottish English have er. So those dialects are settled on the Eastern seaboard. And there are plenty of R-less dialects, um, in places like New York City, Boston, Charleston, all the way down. And that R-less, what we call R-lessness or R-vocalization uh, over time was lost as R-fullness, or we call it roticity, er, um, took its place. 
So in part, it was a lot of different dialects from the British Isles. It wasn't just one. I think people think, oh, the people came from England and they all spoke the same. No, people came speaking a lot of different types of English. And those types of English, by the way, you can still, that's the founder's effect. If you go to the mountains of Appalachia, if you go to the sea islands and outer banks of uh, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, those dialects still have the vestiges of the Irish, Scottish, and English uh, founder dialects. They're still there. Um, you're right that um, over, you know, over time, from I guess the 16th century on, those dialects, the, uh, many of the differences that were uh, characteristic of the founder dialects did kind of bleed into each other. But you'll also note that in terms of the English-speaking scene in the United States, as those colonial Englishes fanned out westward, the dialect differences got less and less and less and less. So that there's more dialect diversity on the East Coast than there is on the West. Because those people, move, you know, people from all over the Eastern Seaboard crisscrossed with each other and came into contact with each other. And so the, the, the dialect richness of the Eastern Seaboard kind of gets lost moving East to West in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now what's happening is... Because of uh, uh, social factors like social class, uh, differences, geographic differences, uh, changes are happening to make West Coast English sound more different from East Coast English, and linguists are studying that, but that's a separate phenomenon. Now, I also want to say, remember that in 1848, anybody want to tell me what 1848 was? The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed that ceded 55% of Mexico to the United States. That was Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Nevada, parts of Utah, parts of Kansas. All of that was Mexico. Oh, yeah. So let's be very clear that Spanish speaking ha has a longer history in the present day of the United States than English speaking does. Right. And that is a thing that is totally whitewashed from the history books. Right. Even look at the place names. Nevada. Mm -hmm. Una Nevada. Yeah. Right. Colorado. Yeah. Colorado, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nuevo it's Mexico. It's not a mistake. <laughs> no, it's not. The, and, and may we please do Florida. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, so that is why I say, you know, when Miami-Dade wants to talk about Spanish as a foreign language, I'm thinking, huh? To who? <laughs> yeah, like on what in what historical sense? And people love to fetishize St. Augustine, you know, as a historical site. But I'm thinking, what language do you think they were speaking in St. Augustine? That's true. This is true. And the idea that my, you know, the um, another another point to add. Look at a map. Sometimes when I give talks, I like to show a map. Okay, so all right, United States outline, and here's here's the floor, here's the Florida Peninsula going into the Caribbean. But you can also take a screenshot of the Caribbean that just shows, you know, like it's a square like this. Of course, your viewers can't see what I'm doing. Your listeners <laughs> can't see what I'm doing. But it's, you know, it's northern Colombia, Venezuela. It's Cuba. It's the whole Caribbean. And then you just see the little incy-beansy tail of Florida sticking into it. And so when you shift the focus from, you know, the United States down, you see that South Florida is totally 1,000 million percent Caribbean. Yeah. Which it's almost it, just a natural evolution of what it's always been. Yes, such that the Tainos, who were the indigenous inhabitants of South Florida, uh, I'm sorry, the Tequesta, are Arawakan people. Were Arawakan people who are related to the Tainos of Cuba and Puerto Rico before they were obliterated by the Spanish. 
So the, the, this region, from even in pre-Columbian times, Arawak and folk were moving around here, right? You know, and th- so then it's English and Spanish, but it's not like this is the first moment of language mixture right. in South Florida. Well, everybody likes to think they're the first. You know, everybody yeah. likes to think that they just discovered this new phenomenon yeah. of, of Spanish. Listeners, just in, forever? this interview has been all about the learn. Yes. Because <laughs> our yeah. motto in our podcast is li- listen, laugh, listen, and learn. learn. This has been all Do we need to laugh more? Is this too like, No, 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 no. No, we, we laugh in our... Okay. Listen, there, there, there were some episodes. So, so I want to talk about the actual research. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, how you went about it, you and, and, and your your team. So how, how did it start? Who 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 was in your your data pool? How how did you get you know how how did how did that happen? How, how so did you this do- study, like I said, we've done a few different studies, but this particular sometimes the prior study when we studied the vowel system, we were literally doing what linguists call sociolinguistic interviews. We were just, it, I mean, it could be this podcast that we're interview talking to people in an informal way and recording, and we go back and we analyze the speech. In that case, we were looking at vowels. I would hate to see what the results are from studying this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Would, they have, well, have 250 Yeah, there's episodes. a lot of sample size there. <laughs> oh, I'll perfect, tell you that. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. My next paper. There. <laughs> um, but in this case, you cannot... It, we were looking at lexical forms, words, and you cannot... You know, how are you going to, in an hour long, say you interview somebody for 45 minutes, how are you going to get them to to say how they, do they get out of the car or do they get down for the car? You're never going to hear that, like in an interview. You can only either observe that by being in an authentic language situation, which we I'm in all the time, and that's why I know people say this, but how do you account for it in research? So we did an experiment, a translation task, where we gave the sentences in Spanish to immigrants their kids and their grandkids, and we just had them translate them into English. And we did this over and over and over again. We tabulated percentages. That was the first part. So, you know, so did, and, and naturally the immigrant generation, they, for, you know, oye hijo, ponme la luz. They all put, put me the light. And then a little less in Gen 2 and a little less in Gen 3. But not always. Some For some of them, like, get down from the car, that's, people say that all the way through. Um, and so... Then we did another experiment where we wanted to test. Uh, so the question is, uh, we wanted to see, do these types of calced expressions, these loan translations, get carried down into the speech of the Miami-born, right? So we answered that question. Then what linguists often want to know is, how are changes taking place in a speech community assessed by, uh, by members of the speech community? Because if people are aware of a change and they evaluate it positively, it is more likely to become a durable aspect of the speech community. If they are not aware of the change, then the change is going to take place, te guste o no, right? But if they are aware of the change and they evaluate it negatively, it might get cut short. So we want to know, you know, in other words, how does people's perception of these uh, forms uh, help us predict whether or not these things will stick around? Wouldn't, would a, comparable i don't know about accurate but a comparable be like um how south florida latinx is not really used so it's one of those like we're very conscious about it we we shun it we prefer hispanic whereas other areas have embraced it yeah maybe except for that one is so politicized and discussed that i wouldn't call i I wouldn't even call that a language change i would call that like a a case of language like uh, that's politics in language for sure Okay. okay um but but in this case um we, we did a perception experiment with Miami listeners, not the same people who did the translation task, with a couple of hundred local folk. And then we got national, non-local people, um, people from elsewhere in the country, a few hundred non-Miami, non-South Floridians, to rate these according to how 
uh, appropriate, or how good it sounds, or how appropriate it sounds. And so we would give, uh, for example, married with. Um, um, Marco está casado con María, right? And, and, and that leads to he's married with as opposed to married to, okay? And that's very common here. So oh, we, yeah. we wanted yeah. to know, right? That's true. Again, um, when you said it, it didn't even dawn on me how, in, quote unquote, incorrect it was until yes. you gave the or correct. let's say yeah. how local it is. How local. There we yeah. go. There we go. Um, and so we wanted to, so we, we, we gave locals both versions, married with and married to. And we gave non-locals both versions. And local people rank the non-local version higher in appropriateness than the local version. But locals rate the local version higher than the non-locals do across the board, except for a couple of things where local people really don't like it. One was um, the expression, uh, in the, the test expression was for to buy, which comes from, oh, I'm, I'm going to the store for to buy coffee. Voy a la tienda para comprar café, right? And so then the putting a, a preposition before an infinitive. Um, people do that here. It's not very common. Uh, it is not very common outside of immigrant speech. And raiders hated it. Local raiders hated it. Local raiders also, an interesting one that people I know do, including native speakers of English, Cuban-Americans born here, thanks God. Yes, I hear that yeah. all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. But in the perception experiment, people did not like that one. And I think that the, I think local raiders, they were cool with eating shit. They were cool with getting down from the car. They were cool with putting the light. They were not cool with throwing a photo, tirar una foto. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> throw a photo. Throw a photo. I'll yeah. catch it if you throw it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, I'm going to throw a photo of you guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, that, I think local folk were cool with most of them, but things that were salient as like, this is foreign sounding speech, local people hated those more than the national audience did. Do you think there's something to be said about seeing it versus hearing it? That made them react. Maybe, uh, yeah. You know, like because when you see something and you're like, you have a moment to sit with it. Yes. Maybe that. That's a good point. Yeah, that that could be. That's a good point. That most of these forms you're not you don't see written down anyways because it because they don't, they're not going to be reproduced in. I mean, maybe in text messages, but they're not going to be reproduced and say if you're reading a Loyal Herald, you're not going to see it written. Did any of you know? Based on your history, you've done a lot of research. You're 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 a doctor in this. Um, was there anything that surprised you in your findings um, after 13 years in Miami? Well, I mean, I will say that there's a bunch of calc expressions that we did not account for. There's so, so, so many, including, you know, drink a pill. Yeah, tomate una pastilla. Tomate una pastilla, yeah, drink a pill. Yeah. Uh, how else are you supposed to say it? Have a pill? <laughs> take, take, take a pill. A pill. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I was <laughs> Yeah, drink a pill. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm telling you. That's why I'm so happy you're here talking about this because these are things that we don't even think about. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, him and I were, I don't want to say we're like super smart, but I mean, we, we, I like to think we think outside of the box. Right, right, right. But this is something that we were very in the box. Yeah, this is our definite yeah, blind spot. Yeah. But yeah. like I said at the start of the show, everybody is in the box of their home language varieties. Because who is telling you that it, you know it takes a, it you have to step outside of your speech community and everybody has that epiphany, including me. Some other forms that I wish that we had included that we did not, and that you know I don't know if we'll do a restudy or if we'll extend this or whatever. But eventually, I want to write about the verb to pass in, in Spanish. Pasar is so. I mean, imagine speaking Spanish without the verb pasar. Pasame las fotos. Pasar las piedras. 
I mean, it's as endless. in you're gonna pass by my house. You're gonna pass by my house because that is something that I would tell people all the time. Wait, is that not? Up, is that not in Spanish? You say "voy a pasar, pasar por la casa." casa. Yeah, yeah. Up, when I was in Michigan, people would be like, "Are you just gonna go in your car and drive by my house?" Because I'd be like, "I'm gonna pass by your house." Because <laughs> because in Michigan they would probably say you're gonna come by. Right. You're gonna come by. <laughs> right. But here, who in my who in South Florida was gonna say anything other than pass by? Right. I have never said anything and other would, than I'm going to pass by your they house. They would make yeah. fun of me. They would be like, so are you just going to go five miles an hour and pass <laughs> by my house? And be yeah. like, hi. Well, when this, this study like, came well, out. I don't feel too fun. <laughs> a, a colleague of mine wrote me an email. A colleague from FIU who is not from here. She is not a Spanish speaker. She is not Latina Hispana. She wrote me and she said, this is amazing. This is like when people say, I'm going to pass by your office. I said, yes, that's exactly what it's yeah. like. Or, um, you know, uh, uh I'll pass you the money. If I owe you something on Venmo, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, right. Te lo paso. Or, um, oh, you made you made some photos at the... Or made photos. You took some photos at the party. Pásamelas. Right. Pásame 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 la photo. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the only time where we don't do that is like, oh, la pasé lo más bien. Because we don't say I passed it great. Oh. Yeah. That's one of the, right. the few exceptions right. where... But do you... How, what do you... What's your verb for... Con la aspiradora? Pass the vacuum. And how about in English? Pass, pass the, the vacuum. vacuum. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to pass the vacuum. I'm going to pass the vacuum. <laughs> well, or you just say I'm going to vacuum. I'm right. going to vacuum. But you say I'm going to pass, pass the vacuum. vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. But you do yeah. find people here saying I'm going to pass the vacuum, whereas you would not likely hear that elsewhere. That is so awesome. I love yeah. it. I, I love this it. is honestly the kind of stuff that we live for because we do live in this bubble, you know, where where we have the, the I don't know, deaf spot, because it's not a blind spot, Um, you know, and to hear these studies happen and and see the results, it's like oh, shit. I, we want to yeah. recommend someone to you. And when you know, if you do further research studying the Miami English, uh, Lucy Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you know her. All she, recommendations. Yeah, right. she was on uh, Power ninety six. She was a DJ for years. She's one of the most popular DJs here. But she. She takes pride at like she's your Miami girl, and, wonderful, and she, you know, she really obviously when she's doing a public appearance, she really steps it up. But um, yeah. she, she does have three dissertations. <laughs> Be fine, and and we love her, and we know her, and she's laughing right now as she's hearing she's this. Listening. Oh, let yeah. me ask you guys a question: When you go to the supermarket and you're paying in cash, and they make change, say the say the total is uh, t- say the total is a hundred dollars, and You've given them a uh, hundred and uh, hundred and five. Well, now I'm going to say the damn example. Um, you've, you give them a hundred and six dollars, and it's and your total is one hundred four thirty two. How are they going to give you the change back? For ca- el cambio, el cambio, el cambio. El cambio. Uh-huh. Yeah, but yes, el cambio. If there's if you're code switching to Spanish, but they're going to say to you uh, uh, three with forty two. Uh huh. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Tres con cuarenta y cinco. Right, but but outside of Miami, it's going to be three forty six without the width. Yes, that yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because in Spanish, when you make change, it's always con dólares con centimo con centavos, right? And then, it, but in English, you don't say width; you just say four thirty six. But here, with, in commercial exchanges in Miami, people are saying, "Oh, four with 33. 10 with twenty two, twelve with." 75. I imagine that you must go everywhere and just like <laughs> like. <laughs> Like everywhere you go, yeah. because it's like, it's like a telepath. Like yes. you just, you're constantly. How do you shut it off, man? Like how do you shut well, it off? I'll tell you. My boyfriend is Cuban American, and his fa- and so his family um, are constantly now writing these down for me and saying, you know, things that they hear his mom say or his grandma say or 
you know, um, things that I don't have access to because I'm not necessarily in families, you know, where people are using these forms. But he's writing, oh, my mom said this and my mom said that. And so that's a source of... So now he went out and got his own sample. Yeah. <laughs> he went, he, that, he starts, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, it, it has to be a reliable sample, and that's the best way to do it. That's yeah. the best way. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So, Philip, I mean, it, Lord, I, I could honestly just tie you to that chair and keep talking to you for like six more hours because this is genuinely one of the most fascinating conversations I think we've had, not just on this show, but in general, because it's things we don't think about. But, but it, you know, it takes that outsider to come in and be like, huh, but you know what I really like? Interesting I, I really like that you said is that so many times, I mean, I, I imagine this is the case with a lot of communities that speak Spanish and English, but here in Miami, so many times we're led to believe that, you know, that we speak the way we do because it's less than and we're immigrants and, and all that. But I think that what you talked about in your research adds validity to it, yeah. that this is a language. This is how we speak. And unapologetically it's who we are and and it's an evolution of language just like there's been a hundred evolutions at different times in different you know areas so well, i think there it puts a validity to it yes yes i'm happy i'm seeing that happen someone did a tiktok on this story that has been seen by like two million people and has thousands of comments she literally just read she summarizes the, the my article and the comments are so positive because it's people from South Florida who are saying versions of what you just said, that they, it feels good to be legitimate. And young people are, I think, are sick of being told. The, the, okay, so here's, here's how I'll put it. The Miami-born, people who grew up here, in my view as a linguist, have a linguistic toolkit that is overly abundant, overly rich, because you have your Spanish, you have your English, you have your Spanglish, you have your code switching. When I look at my boyfriend talk to his, in a dinner situation, when we go out to eat with his family, and he moves from his grandmother in Spanish, the waiter in Spanish, to his mom in English, and his sister in English, and sometimes it's contingent on what the topic is, you know, navigating this big uh, social scene using both, it's like dribbling a basketball. You know, or like I think of like it's just speaking one language is kind of like dribbling a basketball, living in Miami, speaking both and knowing with whom, when, where and what topic is like taking the basketball and doing like the Harlem Globetrotters and like passing it between your legs and spinning on your finger and then passing it back between. It is so much. It is a skill to be able to speak like that. And I speak Spanish and I speak English, but I do not have that skill because I did not grow up as a Spanglish speaker. It's so incredible you're saying that because you know what what example I'm going to say when you guys went up the whole group went up to uh, oh Michigan. yes 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 that's right yeah. back to my Michigan years um, he talks about Michigan there was there was there was a time that like all of my, you know the, the friends went up uh, to Michigan the Miami friends uh, yeah. Miami friends to visit me in Michigan and um, I had gone to a party with like a bunch of my friends from up there um, and these were mostly people from the Midwest. And they said that same exact thing you said as, you know, pertaining to your boyfriend's family, that they were like, you guys like switch mid-sentence and the way you speak and enunciate and all that is completely different than when you then turn around and speak to me in like a split second. And we were all like, this is just the way we speak. Like we have no. Yes. And, and, and imagine that the culture has taken that and transformed that into a deficiency, that the culture reads that as deficient language yes. rather than as a gift. I mean, think of the cognitive complexity that is involved in being, and it's like 
I don't know if it's like a video game, how you have to have your eye on that thing while you move the joystick that way. It's kind of like, how many things can you juggle at once? It's like the grammar of both languages, the phonology of both languages, knowing who prefers what language, maybe sometimes the switches change by a topic. It's a complex cognitive skill and a complex social skill and a complex linguistic skill that gets, that gets demeaned. And then the Miami born also have their Spanish demeaned because people are saying, bueno, cuando vayas a Bogotá no te van a entender. You know, all that type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, and then yeah. the English is demeaned because it's like, oh, it's like, you sound like, what country are you from? Well, I'm from Florida, right? right? So it's, I, I, I guess my message with this research is that um, to your point about what's happening here being no different than anywhere else. Exactly. Exactly. That this, it, all language variety, all, all words, as I said in the piece, but also all language varieties, all dialects and all languages for that matter have a history. They all come out of people doing whatever it is that people are doing under historical conditions, whether that's, you know, 200,000 years ago, moving out of Africa and moving across Asia and going down to Australia or getting in little boats as the, uh, as the Austronesians did from Taiwan and literally sailing in boats to New Zealand and Madagascar. You know, people have been moving around the world and taking their language and coming into contact with people. That is the history of human language. That's kind of how it happens. And so it's sort of like our, you know, late modern ideas that give us the idea that, oh, you're supposed to keep it separate or, oh, there's good language and there's bad language. And, oh, and there's an authority who's located somewhere in Europe who's going to tell you what's good and bad and right and wrong. That's why I said that thing about the teachers. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not so sure about putting my, 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 my trust in any authority on language because the people are the authority. Well, I think the takeaway from all of this is that all language is valid. All speech is valid. Así que habla lo que te dé la gana. Exactly. Because at the end of the yeah, day, bro. mientras que te entiendan, you know what? You're doing a good job. Yes. I think yeah. that's the, the, the bottom line there, that right? That is the bottom line. And I, I, I'll, I'll say, you know, we've this conversation is focused on the context situation between Spanish and English and the phenomenon of Spanglish and Miami English, informed as it is by Spanish and foreign accent speech. But I want to say there are a lot of ways of speaking English in South Florida, not only this one including transplant varieties, Jamaican English, Bahamian English, other Afro-Caribbean varieties of English, people who come here and set up. And the longest continuously spoken way of speaking English in South Florida is African-American English. Because before the revolution, before 1959, when there were only maybe four or 5,000 Cubans living in South Florida, Miami was more like a traditional Southern town with Southern English-speaking Anglo-whites and African-Americans. And as Miami first Cubanized and then Latinized, the Southern white speech left with the Southern whites. But the African-American population, 18, 19, 20%, has been 18, 19, 20% all the way through. And those people have been speaking their variety of African-American English. They are the descendants of slaves. And their variety of English developed under conditions including the slave trade that got then passed down and so i think that variety should be a part of the conversation as well that that black english transplant varieties are also here and a part of our sociolinguistic scene too that's i'm so glad you mentioned that so glad that you brought that up because 
you know, uh, just the historical context. It's something that people need to to know when having this conversation. Because you're absolutely right. The the population has been more or less consistent. So they haven't gone anywhere. These are the descendants of the descendants of the descendants of the descendants. Yes. And so, the you know, all, I think all the historicizing that we've done on uh, Miami English and talking... Okay, so really it was... I mean, we can historicize it right now. 1959, the revolution happens. 1960, people start coming. Then 1970, more people come. Then the Marialitos, then the Balseros. But then, you know, because Miami was set up as a place where you could speak Spanish, and in the beginning you could go to school in Spanish because Coral Way was set up as a Spanish-speaking school or a bilingual school. That got shut down because of the politics. But in the beginning, the idea was you could you could be in Miami and live a Spanish-speaking life because the, cuando volvamos a Cuba, we want our yep. kids to be able yep. to speak, right? Okay, that didn't happen. That didn't go down. But um, so then it was understood that when the Civil War took place in Nicaragua, Miami was the natural place to go, not Los Angeles, right? And so the then, language. Because, yes, yeah. because it's a place where you can be a political exile and speak Spanish, and it's okay. And then in you know the 1990s with Colombia and the Civil War and the drug situation when people left and when Argentina's economy collapsed, then it was like, oh, where, where do you go if you're a political exile from a Spanish-speaking country? Miami. So it's, it's, I guess what I want to do is historicize it in that sense. Also, there are economic exiles who come here, but by and large, it was set up by political exiles, right? And when there is a Venezuela, obviously being the next case, that the elites of the country come first as political exiles, and then the economic exiles come after them. And that's precisely what's happened. This is why it's so important. And we say this over and over again here, people. It's important to know history. History. (laughs) It's important to know history, to know where we came from, what happened, and that obviously helps you figure out why things are the way they are. So, um, I mean, this has been amazing. I, I, I'm like, I'm overwhelmed, but in a good way. Yeah. Uh, like I, <laughs> we're recording an episode after this and I, we need a breather yeah. to absorb <laughs> yeah. all of this because like, and I mean that in the best way possible, it's just so fascinating. It is. And I, I, I can't say that word enough how fascinating it is. And you know, Philip again, thank you. Thank you for coming by. I, I will say open invitation. Whenever you want to swing by with any new studies, I mean, or just to hang out, I don't know, but I'm assuming, you know, you're a busy guy. You've been doing a hell of a press tour this week. So, you know, please, please feel free to, you you. know, swing by and and keep educating us. And next time somebody makes us feel bad for the way we speak English and Spanish, we tell them, do you have the cognitive complexity that we do? (laughs) Right. And then they're going to ask, what is cognitive complexity? And then we're going to say, it's you're dumb. That's no, right. no, then you're going to say, we all have the evolutionary endowment to speak more than one language and to juggle our multiple languages at once. That's what we're going to say. Except That's... for you, the person who's asking. Well, thank you, guys. This has been no, a great pleasure. Thank you. No, thank, thank you. you. Pero Let Me Tell You is co-hosted by Darian Borges and Ismaeliano, produced by Ismaeliano, and our theme, Pero Let Me Tell You Freestyle, is composed by Michael Angelo Lomlaplex, the official gay guy. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes.